Chapter Seventeen of the Voyage Out by Virginia Woolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen. It was now the height of the season, and every ship that came from England left a few people on the shores of Santa Marina, who drove up to the hotel. The fact that the Ambroses had a house where every one could escape momentarily from the slightly inhuman atmosphere of an hotel was a source of genuine pleasure not only to hurst and hewitt but to the elliots the thornburys the flushings miss allen evelyn m together with other people whose identity was so little developed that the ambroses did not discover that they possessed names by degrees there was established a kind of correspondence between the two houses the big and the small so that at most hours of the day one house could guess what was going on in the other and the words the villa and the hotel called up the idea of two separate systems of life acquaintances showed signs of developing into friends for that one tie to mrs parry's drawing-room had inevitably split into many other ties attached to different parts of england and sometimes these alliances seemed cynically fragile and sometimes painfully acute lacking as they did the supporting background of organized english life one night when the moon was round between the trees evelyn m told helen the story of her life and claimed her everlasting friendship on another occasion merely because of a sigh or a pause or a word thoughtlessly dropped poor mrs elliot left the villa half in tears vowing never again to meet the cold and scornful woman who had insulted her and in truth meet again they never did it did not seem worth while to piece together so slight a friendship hewitt indeed might have found excellent material at this time up at the villa for some chapters in the novel which was to be called silence or the things people don't say helen and rachel had become very silent having detected as she thought a secret and judging that rachel meant to keep it from her mrs ambrose respected it carefully but from that cause though unintentionally a curious atmosphere of reserve grew up between them instead of sharing their views upon all subjects and plunging after an idea wherever it might lead they spoke chiefly in comment upon the people they saw and the secret between them made itself felt in what they said even of thornbury's and elliot's always calm and unemotional in her judgments mrs ambrose was now inclined to be definitely pessimistic she was not severe upon individuals so much as incredulous as to the kindness of destiny fate what happens in the long run and apt to insist that this was generally adverse to people in proportion as they deserved well even this theory she was ready to discard in favour of one which made chaos triumphant things happening for no reason at all and every one groping about in illusion and ignorance with a certain pleasure she developed these views to her niece taking a letter from home as her test which gave good news but might just as well have given bad how did she know that at this very moment both her children were not lying dead crushed by motor omnibuses it's happening to somebody why shouldn't it happen to me she would argue her face taking on the stoical expression of anticipated sorrow however sincere these views may have been 
they were undoubtedly called forth by the irrational state of her niece's mind it was so fluctuating and went so quickly from joy to despair that it seemed necessary to confront it with some stable opinion which naturally became dark as well as stable perhaps mrs ambrose had some idea that in leading the talk into these quarters she might discover what was in rachel's mind but it was difficult to judge for sometimes she would agree with the gloomiest thing that was said at other times she refused to listen and rammed helen's theories down her throat with laughter chatter ridicule of the wildest and fierce bursts of anger even at what she called the croaking of a raven in the mud it's hard enough without that she asserted what's hard helen demanded life she replied and then they both became silent helen might draw her own conclusions as to why life was hard as to why an hour later perhaps life was something so wonderful and vivid that the eyes of rachel beholding it were positively exhilarating to a spectator true to her creed she did not attempt to interfere although there were enough of those weak moments of depression to make it perfectly easy for a less scrupulous person to press through and know all and perhaps rachel was sorry that she did not choose all these moods ran themselves into one general effect which helen compared to the sliding of a river quick quicker quicker still as it races to a waterfall her instinct was to cry out stop but even had there been any use in crying stop she would have refrained thinking it best that things should take their way the water racing because the earth was shaped to make it race it seemed that rachel herself had no suspicion that she was watched or that there was anything in her manner likely to draw attention to her what had happened to her she did not know her mind was very much in the condition of the racing water to which helen compared it she wanted to see terence she was perpetually wishing to see him when he was not there it was an agony to miss seeing him agonies were strewn all about her day on account of him but she never asked herself what this force driving through her life arose from she thought of no result any more than a tree perpetually pressed downwards by the wind considers the result of being pressed downwards by the wind during the two or three weeks which had passed since their walk half a dozen notes from him had accumulated in her drawer she would read them and spend the whole morning in a daze of happiness the sunny land outside the window being no less capable of analysing its own colour and heat than she was of analysing hers in these moods she found it impossible to read or play the piano even to move being beyond her inclination the time passed without her noticing it when it was dark she was drawn to the window by the lights of the hotel a light that went in and out was the light in terence's window there he sat reading perhaps or now he was walking up and down pulling out one book after another and now he was seated in his chair again and she tried to imagine what he was thinking about the steady lights marked the rooms where terence sat with people moving round him every one who stayed at the hotel had a peculiar romance and interest about them they were not ordinary people she would attribute wisdom to mrs elliot beauty to susan warrington a splendid vitality to evelyn m because terence spoke to them as unreflecting and pervasive were the moods of depression 
her mind was as the landscape outside when dark beneath clouds and straightly lashed by wind and hail again she would sit passive in her chair exposed to pain and helen's fantastical or gloomy words were like so many darts goading her to cry out against the hardness of life best of all were the moods when for no reason again this stress of feeling slackened and life went on as usual only with a joy and colour in its events that was unknown before they had a significance like that which she had seen in the tree the nights were black bars separating her from the days she would have liked to run all the days into one long continuity of sensation although these moods were directly or indirectly caused by the presence of terence or the thought of him she never said to herself that she was in love with him or considered what was to happen if she continued to feel such things so that helen's image of the river sliding on to the waterfall had great likeness to the facts and the alarm which helen sometimes felt was justified in her curious condition of unanalyzed sensation she was incapable of making a plan which should have any effect upon her state of mind she abandoned herself to the mercy of accidents missing terence one day meeting him the next receiving his letters always with a start of surprise any woman experienced in the progress of courtship would have come by certain opinions from all this which would have given her at least a theory to go upon but no one had ever been in love with rachel and she had never been in love with any one moreover none of the books she read from wuthering heights to man and superman and the plays of ibsen suggested from their analysis of love that what their heroines felt was what she was feeling now it seemed to her that her sensations had no name she met terence frequently when they did not meet he was apt to send a note with a book or about a book for he had not been able after all to neglect that approach to intimacy but sometimes he did not come or did not write for several days at a time again when they met their meeting might be one of inspiring joy or harassing despair over all their partings hung the sense of interruption leaving them both unsatisfied though ignorant that the other shared the feeling if rachel was ignorant of her own feeling she was even more completely ignorant of his at first he moved as a god as she came to know him better he was still the centre of light but combined with this beauty a wonderful power of making her daring and confident of herself she was conscious of emotions and powers which she had never suspected in herself and of a depth in the world hitherto unknown when she thought of their relationship she saw rather than reasoned representing her view of what terence felt by a picture of him drawn across the room to stand by her side this passage across the room amounted to a physical sensation but what it meant she did not know thus the time went on wearing a calm bright look upon its surface letters came from england letters came from willoughby and the days accumulated their small events which shaped the year superficially three odes of pindar were mended helen covered about five inches of her embroidery and st john completed the first two acts of a play he and rachel being now very good friends he read them aloud to her and she was so genuinely impressed by the skill of his rhythms and the variety of his adjectives as well as by the fact that he was terence's friend 
that he began to wonder whether he was not intended for literature rather than for law it was a time of profound thought and sudden revelations for more than one couple and several single people a sunday came which no one in the villa with the exception of rachel and the spanish maid proposed to recognize rachel still went to church because she had never according to helen taken the trouble to think about it since they had celebrated the service at the hotel she went there expecting to get some pleasure from her passage across the garden and through the hall of the hotel although it was very doubtful whether she would see terence or at any rate have the chance of speaking to him as the greater number of visitors at the hotel were english there was almost as much difference between sunday and wednesday as there was in england and sunday appeared here as there the mute black ghost or penitent spirit of the busy weekday the english could not pale the sunshine but they could in some miraculous way slow down the hours dull the incidents lengthen the meals and make even the servants and page-boys wear a look of boredom and propriety the best clothes which every one put on helped the general effect it seemed that no lady could sit down without bending a clean starched petticoat and no gentleman could breathe without a sudden crackle from a stiff shirt-front as the hands of the clock neared eleven on this particular sunday various people tended to draw together in the hall clasping little red-leaved books in their hands the clock marked a few minutes to the hour when a stout black figure passed through the hall with a preoccupied expression as though he would rather not recognize salutations although aware of them and disappeared down the corridor which led from it mr bax mrs thornbury whispered a little group of people then began to move off in the same direction as the stout black figure looked at in an odd way by people who made no effort to join them they moved with one exception slowly and conspicuously towards the stairs mrs flushing was the exception she came running downstairs strode across the hall joined the procession much out of breath demanding of mrs thornbury in an agitated whisper where where we are all going said mrs thornbury gently and soon they were descending the stairs two by two rachel was among the first to descend she did not see that terence and hurst came in at the rear possessed of no black volume but of one thin book bound in light blue cloth which st john carried under his arm the chapel was the old chapel of the monks it was a profound cool place where they had said mass for hundreds of years and done penance in the cold moonlight and worshipped old brown pictures and carved saints which stood with upraised hands of blessing in the hollows in the walls the transition from catholic to protestant worship had been bridged by a time of disuse when there were no services and the place was used for storing jars of oil liqueur and deck chairs the hotel flourishing some religious body had taken the place in hand and it was now fitted out with a number of glazed yellow benches claret-coloured footstools it had a small pulpit and a brass eagle carrying the bible on its back while the piety of different women had supplied ugly squares of carpet and long strips of embroidery heavily wrought with monograms in gold as the congregation entered they were met by mild sweet chords issuing from a harmonium where miss willett concealed from view by a baize curtain 
struck emphatic chords with uncertain fingers the sound spread through the chapel as the rings of water spread from a fallen stone the twenty or twenty-five people who composed the congregation first bowed their heads and then sat up and looked about them it was very quiet and the light down here seemed paler than the light above the usual bows and smiles were dispensed with but they recognized each other the lord's prayer was read over them as the childlike battle of voices rose the congregation many of whom had only met on the staircase felt themselves pathetically united and well disposed towards each other as if the prayer were a torch applied to fuel a smoke seemed to rise automatically and fill the place with the ghosts of innumerable services on innumerable sunday mornings at home susan warrington in particular was conscious of the sweetest sense of sisterhood as she covered her face with her hands and saw slips of bent backs through the chinks between her fingers her emotions rose calmly and evenly approving of herself and of life at the same time it was all so quiet and so good but having created this peaceful atmosphere mr back suddenly turned the page and read a psalm though he read it with no change of voice the mood was broken be merciful unto me o god he read for man goeth about to devour me he is daily fighting and troubling me they daily mistake my words all that they imagine is to do me evil they hold all together and keep themselves close break their teeth o god in their mouths smite the jawbones of the lions o lord let them fall away like water that runneth apace and when they shoot their arrows let them be rooted out nothing in susan's experience at all corresponded with this and as she had no love of language she had long ceased to attend to such remarks although she followed them with the same kind of mechanical respect with which she heard many of lear's speeches read aloud her mind was still serene and really occupied with praise of her own nature and praise of god that is of the solemn and satisfactory order of the world but it could be seen from a glance at their faces that most of the others the men in particular felt the inconvenience of the sudden intrusion of this old savage they looked more secular and critical as they listened to the ravings of the old black man with a cloth round his loins cursing with a vehement gesture by a camp-fire in the desert after that there was a general sound of pages being turned as if they were in class and then they read a little bit of the old testament about making a well very much as schoolboys translate an easy passage from the anabasis when they have shut up their french grammar then they returned to the new testament and the sad and beautiful figure of christ while christ spoke they made another effort to fit his interpretation of life upon the lives they lived but as they were all very different some practical some ambitious some stupid some wild and experimental some in love and others long past any feeling except a feeling of comfort they did very different things with the words of christ from their faces it seemed that for the most part they made no effort at all and recumbent as it were accepted the ideas the words gave as representing goodness in the same way no doubt as one of those industrious needlewomen had accepted the bright ugly pattern on her mat as beauty 
whatever the reason might be for the first time in her life instead of slipping at once into some curious pleasant cloud of emotion too familiar to be considered rachel listened critically to what was being said by the time they had swung in an irregular way from prayer to psalm from psalm to history from history to poetry and mr bax was giving out his text she was in a state of acute discomfort such was the discomfort she felt when forced to sit through an unsatisfactory piece of music badly played tantalized enraged by the clumsy insensitiveness of the conductor who put the stress on the wrong places and annoyed by the vast flock of the audience tamely praising and acquiescing without knowing or caring so she was not tantalized and enraged only here with eyes half shut and lips pursed together the atmosphere of forced solemnity increased her anger all round her were people pretending to feel what they did not feel while somewhere above her floated the idea which they could none of them grasp which they pretended to grasp always escaping out of reach a beautiful idea an idea like a butterfly one after another vast and hard and cold appeared to her the churches all over the world where this blundering effort and misunderstanding were perpetually going on great buildings filled with innumerable men and women not seeing clearly who finally gave up the effort to see and relapsed tamely into praise and acquiescence half shutting their eyes and pursing up their lips the thought had the same sort of physical discomfort as is caused by a film of mist always coming between the eyes and the printed page she did her best to brush away the film and to conceive something to be worshipped as the service went on but failed always misled by the voice of mr back saying things which misrepresented the idea and by the patter of barring inexpressive human voices falling round her like damp leaves the effort was tiring and dispiriting she ceased to listen and fixed her eyes on the face of a woman near her a hospital nurse whose expression of devout attention seemed to prove that she was at any rate receiving satisfaction but looking at her carefully she came to the conclusion that the hospital nurse was only slavishly acquiescent and that the look of satisfaction was produced by no splendid conception of god within her how indeed could she conceive anything far outside her own experience a woman with a commonplace face like hers a little round red face upon which trivial duties and trivial spites had drawn lines whose weak blue eyes saw without intensity or individuality whose features were blurred insensitive and callous she was adoring something shallow and smug clinging to it to the obstinate mouth witnessed with the assiduity of a limpet nothing would tear her from her demure belief in her own virtue and the virtues of her religion she was a limpet with the sensitive side of her stuck to a rock forever dead to the rush of fresh and beautiful things past her the face of this single worshipper became printed on rachel's mind with an impression of keen horror and she had it suddenly revealed to her what helen meant and st john meant when they proclaimed their hatred of christianity with the violence that now marked her feelings she rejected all that she had implicitly believed meanwhile mr bax was half-way through the second lesson she looked at him 
he was a man of the world with supple lips and an agreeable manner he was indeed a man of much kindliness and simplicity though by no means clever but she was not in the mood to give any one credit for such qualities and examined him as though he were an epitome of all the vices of his service right at the back of the chapel mrs flushing hurst and hewitt sat in a row in a very different frame of mind hewitt was staring at the roof with his legs stuck out in front of him for as he had never tried to make the service fit any feelings or idea of his he was able to enjoy the beauty of the language without hindrance his mind was occupied first with accidental things such as the women's hair in front of him the light on the faces then with the words which seemed to him magnificent and then more vaguely with the characters of the other worshippers but when he suddenly perceived rachel all these thoughts were driven out of his head and he thought only of her the psalms the prayers the litany and the sermon were all reduced to one chanting sound which paused and then renewed itself a little higher or a little lower he stared alternately at rachel and at the ceiling but his expression was now produced not by what he saw but something in his mind he was almost as painfully disturbed by his thoughts as she was by hers early in the service mrs flushing had discovered that she had taken up a bible instead of a prayer-book and as she was sitting next to her she stole a glance over his shoulder he was reading steadily in the thin pale blue volume unable to understand she peered closer upon which hurst politely laid the book before her pointing to the first line of a greek poem and then to the translation opposite what's that she whispered inquisitively sappho he replied the one swinburne did the best thing that's ever been written mrs flushing could not resist such an opportunity she gulped down the ode to aphrodite during the litany keeping herself with difficulty from asking when sappho lived and what else she wrote worth reading and contriving to come in punctually at the end with the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting amen meanwhile hurst took out an envelope and began scribbling on the back of it when mr bax mounted the pulpit he shut up sappho with his envelope between the pages settled his spectacles and fixed his gaze intently upon the clergyman standing in the pulpit he looked very large and fat the light coming through the greenish unstained window-glass made his face appear smooth and white like a very large egg he looked round at all the faces looking mildly up at him though some of them were the faces of men and women old enough to be his grandparents and gave out his text with weighty significance the argument of the sermon was that visitors to this beautiful land although they were on a holiday owed a duty to the natives it did not in truth differ very much from a leading article upon topics of general interest in the weekly newspapers it rambled with a kind of amiable verbosity from one heading to another suggesting that all human beings are very much the same under their skins illustrating this by the resemblance of the games which little spanish boys play to the games little boys in london streets play observing that very small things do influence people particularly natives in fact a very dear friend of mr bax's had told him that the success of our rule in india that vast country largely depended upon the strict code of politeness 
which the English adopted towards the natives, which led to the remark that small things were not necessarily small, and that somehow, to the virtue of sympathy, which was a virtue never more needed than today, when we lived in a time of experiment and upheaval, witness the aeroplane and wireless telegraph, and there were other problems which hardly presented themselves to our fathers, but which no man who called himself a man could leave unsettled. Here Mr. Bax became more definitely clerical, if it were possible. He seemed to speak with a certain innocent craftiness, as he pointed out that all this laid a special duty upon earnest Christians. What men were inclined to say now was, Oh, that fellow, he is a parson. What we want them to say is, He's a good fellow. In other words, he is my brother. He exhorted them to keep in touch with men of the modern type, they must sympathize with their multifarious interests in order to keep before their eyes that whatever discoveries were made there was one discovery which could not be superseded which was indeed as much of a necessity as the most successful and most brilliant of them all as it had been to their fathers the humblest could help the least important things had an influence here his manner became definitely priestly and his remarks seemed to be directed to women, for indeed Mr. Bax's congregations were mainly composed of women, and he was used to assigning them their duties in his innocent clerical campaigns. Leaving more definite instruction, he passed on, and his theme broadened into the peroration for which he drew a long breath and stood very upright. As a drop of water, detached, alone, separate from others, falling from the cloud and entering the great ocean, alters so scientists tell us not only the immediate spot in the ocean where it falls but all the myriad drops which together compose the great universe of waters and by this means alters the configuration of the globe and the lives of millions of sea creatures and finally the lives of the men and women who seek their living upon the shores as all this is within the compass of a single drop of water such as any rain shower sends in millions to lose themselves in the earth to lose themselves, we say, but we know very well that the fruits of the earth do not flourish without them. So is a marvel comparable to this within the reach of each one of us, whose dropping a little word or a little deed into the great universe alters it. Yea, it is a solemn thought, alters it, for good or for evil, not for one instant, or for one vicinity, but throughout the entire race, and for all eternity." Whipping round as though to avoid applause, he continued with the same breath, but in a different tone of voice. And now, to God the Father, he gave his blessing, and then, while the solemn chords again issued from the harmonium behind the curtain, the different people began scraping and fumbling and moving very awkwardly and consciously towards the door. Halfway upstairs, at a point where the light and sounds of the upper world conflicted with the dimness and the dying hymn-tune from the under, Rachel felt a hand drop upon her shoulder. "'Miss Vinrace,' Mrs. Flushing whispered peremptorily, "'stay to luncheon. It's such a dismal day. They don't even give one beef for luncheon. Please stay.' Here they came out into the hall, where once more the little band was greeted with curious, respectful glances by the people who had not gone to church, although their clothing made it clear that they approved of Sunday to the very verge of going to church. 
Rachel felt unable to stand any more of this particular atmosphere and was about to say she must go back when Terence passed them, drawn along in talk with Evelyn M. Rachel thereupon contented herself with saying that the people looked very respectable, which negative remark Mrs. Flushing interpreted to mean that she would stay. "'English people abroad,' she returned with a vivid flash of malice. "'Ain't it awful? But you won't stay here,' she continued, plucking at Rachel's arm. "'Come up to my room.' She bore her past Hewitt and Evelyn and the Thornburys and the Elliots. Hewitt stepped forward. "'Luncheon?' he began. "'Miss Vinrace has promised to lunch with me,' said Mrs. Flushing, and began to pound energetically up the staircase, as though the middle classes of England were in pursuit. She did not stop until she had slammed her bedroom door behind them. "'Well, what did you think of it?' she demanded, panting slightly. All the disgust and horror which Rachel had been accumulated burst forth beyond her control. "'I thought it the most loathsome exhibition I'd ever seen,' she broke out. "'How can they? How dare they? What do you mean by it? Mr. Bax, hospital nurses, old men, prostitutes, disgusting!' she hit off the point she remembered as far as she could but she was too indignant to stop to analyse her feelings mrs flushing watched her with a keen gusto as she stood ejaculating with emphatic movements of her head and hands in the middle of the room go on go on do go on she laughed clapping her hands it's delightful to hear you but why do you go rachel demanded i've been every sunday of my life ever since i can remember mrs flushing chuckled as though that were a reason by itself rachel turned abruptly to the window she did not know what it was that had put her into such a passion the sight of terence in the hall had confused her thoughts leaving her merely indignant she looked straight at their own villa half way up the side of the mountain the most familiar view seemed framed through glass has a certain unfamiliar distinction and she grew calm as she gazed then she remembered that she was in the presence of someone she did not know well, and she turned and looked at Mrs. Flushing. Mrs. Flushing was still sitting on the edge of the bed, looking up, with her lips parted, so that her strong white teeth showed in two rows. "'Tell me,' she said, "'which do you like best, Mr. Hewitt or Mr. Hurst?' "'Mr. Hewitt,' Rachel replied, but her voice did not sound natural. "'Which is the one who reads Greek in church?' mrs flushing demanded it might have been either of them and while mrs flushing proceeded to describe them both and to say that both frightened her but one frightened her more than the other rachel looked for a chair the room of course was one of the largest and most luxurious in the hotel there were a great many armchairs and settees covered in brown holland but each of these was occupied by a large square piece of yellow cardboard and all the pieces of cardboard were dotted or lined with spots or dashes of bright oil paint. "'But you're not to look at those,' said Mrs. Flushing, as she saw Rachel's eye wander. She jumped up and turned as many as she could, face downwards, upon the floor. Rachel, however, managed to possess herself of one of them, and with the vanity of an artist, Mrs. Flushing demanded anxiously, "'Well, well?' "'It's a hill,' Rachel replied. There could be no doubt that Mrs. Flushing had represented the vigorous and abrupt fling of the earth up into the air. You could almost see the clods flying as it whirled. Rachel passed from one to another. They were all marked by something of a jerk and decision of their maker. 
they were all perfectly untrained onslaughts of the brush upon some half-realized idea suggested by hill or tree and they were all in some way characteristic of mrs flushing i see things moving mrs flushing explained so she swept her hand through a yard of the air and then took up one of the cardboards which rachel had laid aside seated herself on a stool and began to flourish a stump of charcoal while she occupied herself in strokes which seemed to serve her as speech serves others rachel who was very restless looked about her open the wardrobe said mrs flushing after a pause speaking indistinctly because of a paintbrush in her mouth and look at the things as rachel hesitated mrs flushing came forwards still with a paintbrush in her mouth flung open the wings of her wardrobe and tossed a quantity of shawls stuffs cloaks embroideries onto the bed rachel began to finger them mrs flushing came up once more and dropped a quantity of beads brooches earrings bracelets tassels and combs among the draperies then she went back to her stool and began to paint in silence the stuffs were coloured and dark and pale they made a curious swarm of lines and colours upon the counterpane with the reddish lumps of stone and peacock's feathers and clear pale tortoise-shell combs lying among them the women wore them hundreds of years ago and wear em still mrs flushing remarked my husband rides about and finds em they don't know what they're worth so we get em cheap and we shall sell em to smart women in london she chuckled as though the thought of these ladies and their absurd appearance amused her after painting for some minutes she suddenly laid down her brush and fixed her eyes upon rachel i tell you what i want to do she said i want to go up there and see things for myself it's silly staying here with a pack of old maids as though we were at the seaside in england i want to go up the river and see the natives in the camps it's only a matter of ten days under canvas my husband's done it one would lie out under the trees at night and be towed down the river by day and if we saw anything nice we'd shout out and tell em to stop she rose and began piercing the bed again and again with a long golden pin as she watched to see what effect her suggestion had upon rachel we must make up a party she went on ten people could hire a launch now you'll come and mrs ambrose'll come and will mr hurst and t'other gentlemen come where's a pencil she became more and more determined and excited as she evolved her plan she sat on the edge of the bed and wrote down a list of surnames which she invariably spelt wrong rachel was enthusiastic for indeed the idea was immeasurably delightful to her she had always had a great desire to see the river and the name of terence threw a lustre over the prospect which made it almost too good to come true she did what she could to help mrs flushing by suggesting names helping her to spell them and counting up the days of the week upon her fingers as mrs flushing wanted to know all she could tell her about the birth and pursuits of every person she suggested and threw in wild stories of her own as to the temperaments and habits of artists and people of the same name who used to come to chillingly in the old days but were doubtless not the same though they too were very clever men interested in egyptology the business took some time at last mrs flushing sought her diary for help the method of reckoning dates on the fingers proving unsatisfactory she opened and shut every drawer in her writing-table and then cried furiously yarmouth yarmouth drat the woman she's always out of the way when she's wanted 
at this moment the luncheon gong began to work itself into its midday frenzy mrs flushing rang her bell violently the door was opened by a handsome maid who was almost as upright as her mistress oh yarmouth said mrs flushing just find my diary and see where ten days from now would bring us to and ask the hall porter how many men would be wanted to row eight people up the river for a week and what it had cost and put it on a slip of paper and leave it on my dressing-table now she pointed at the door with a superb forefinger so that rachel had to lead the way oh and yarmouth mrs flushing called back over her shoulder put those things away and hang em in their right places there's a good girl or it fusses mr flushing to all of which yarmouth merely replied yes ma'am as they entered the long dining-room it was obvious that the day was still sunday although the mood was slightly abating the flushing's table was set by the side in the window so that mrs flushing could scrutinize each figure as it entered and her curiosity seemed to be intense old mrs paley she whispered as the wheeled chair slowly made its way through the door arthur pushing behind thornbury's came next that nice woman she nudged rachel to look at miss allen what's her name the painted lady who always came in late tripping into the room with a prepared smile as though she came out upon a stage might well have quailed before mrs flushing's stare which expressed her steely hostility to the whole tribe of painted ladies next came the two young men whom mrs flushing called collectively the hursts they sat down opposite across the gangway mr flushing treated his wife with a mixture of admiration and indulgence making up by the suavity and fluency of his speech for the abruptness of hers while she darted and ejaculated he gave rachel a sketch of the history of south american art he would deal with one of his wife's exclamations and then return as smoothly as ever to his theme he knew very well how to make a luncheon pass agreeably without being dull or intimate he had formed the opinion so he told rachel that wonderful treasures lay hid in the depths of the land the things rachel had seen were merely trifles picked up in the course of one short journey he thought there might be giant gods hewn out of stone in the mountainside and colossal figures standing by themselves in the middle of vast green pasture-lands where none but natives had ever trod before the dawn of european art he believed that the primitive huntsmen and priests had built temples of massive stone slabs had formed out of the dark rocks and the great cedar trees majestic figures of gods and of beasts and symbols of the great forces water air and forest among which they lived there might be prehistoric towns like those in greece and asia standing in open spaces among the trees filled with the works of this early race nobody had been there scarcely anything was known thus talking and displaying the most picturesque of his theories rachel's attention was fixed upon him she did not see that hewitt kept looking at her across the gangway between the figures of waiters hurrying past with plates he was inattentive and hurst was finding him also very cross and disagreeable they had touched upon all the usual topics upon politics and literature gossip and christianity they had quarrelled over the service which was every bit as fine as sappho according to hewitt so that hurst's paganism was mere ostentation why go to church he demanded merely in order to read sappho hurst observed that he had listened to every word of the sermon as he could prove if hewitt would like a repetition of it 
and he went to church in order to realize the nature of his creator which he had done very vividly that morning thanks to mr bax who had inspired him to write three of the most superb lines in english literature an invocation to the deity i wrote him on the back of the envelope of my aunt's last letter he said and pulled it from between the pages of sappho well let's hear them said hewitt slightly mollified by the prospect of a literary discussion my dear hewitt do you wish us both to be flung out of the hotel by an enraged mob of thornburys and elliots hurst inquired the merest whisper would be sufficient to incriminate me for ever god he broke out what's the use of attempting to write when the world's peopled by such damned fools seriously hewitt i advise you to give up literature what's the good of it there's your audience he nodded his head at the tables where the very miscellaneous collection of europeans were now engaged in eating in some case in gnawing the stringy foreign fowls hewitt looked and grew more out of temper than ever hurst looked too his eyes fell upon rachel and he bowed to her i rather think rachel's in love with me he remarked as his eyes returned to his plate that's the worst of friendships with young women they tend to fall in love with one to that hewitt made no answer whatever and sat singularly still hurst did not seem to mind getting no answer for he returned to mr bax again quoting the peroration about the drop of water and when hewitt scarcely replied to these remarks either he merely pursed his lips chose a fig and relapsed quite contentedly into his own thoughts of which he always had a very large supply when luncheon was over they separated taking their cups of coffee to different parts of the hall from his chair beneath the palm-tree hewitt saw rachel come out of the dining-room with the flushings he saw them look round for chairs and choose three in a corner where they could go on talking in private mr flushing was now in the full tide of his discourse he produced a sheet of paper upon which he made drawings as he went on with his talk he saw rachel lean over and look pointing to this and that with her finger hewitt unkindly compared mr flushing who was extremely well dressed for a hot climate and rather elaborate in his manner to a very persuasive shopkeeper meanwhile as he sat looking at them he was entangled in the thornburys and miss allen who after hovering about for a minute or so settled in chairs round him holding their cups in their hands they wanted to know whether he could tell them anything about mr bax mr thornbury as usual sat saying nothing looking vaguely ahead of him occasionally raising his eyeglasses as if to put them on and always thinking better of it at the last moment and letting them fall again after some discussion the ladies put it beyond a doubt that mr bax was not the son of mr william bax there was a pause then mrs thornbury remarked that she was still in the habit of saying queen instead of king in the national anthem there was another pause then miss allen observed reflectively that going to church abroad always made her feel as if she had been to a sailor's funeral there was then a very long pause which threatened to be final when mercifully a bird about the size of a magpie but of a metallic blue colour appeared on the section of the terrace that could be seen from where they sat mrs thornbury was led to inquire whether we should like it if all our rooks were blue what do you think william she asked touching her husband on the knee if all our rooks were blue he said he raised his glasses he actually placed them on his nose they would not long live in wiltshire he concluded 
he dropped his glasses to his side again the three elderly people now gazed meditatively at the bird which was so obliging as to stay in the middle of the view for a considerable space of time thus making it unnecessary for them to speak again hewitt began to wonder whether he might not cross over to the flushings corner when hurst appeared from the background slipped into a chair by rachel's side and began to talk to her with every appearance of familiarity hewitt could stand it no longer he rose took his hat and dashed out of doors End of chapter seventeen